Today's reading is from Acts 17, 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when some of the resurrection of the dead, or now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. All right, thanks Esther. If I were nicer, I'd let people, I'd ask them to read on like Wednesday, but it's normally about Saturday night or Sunday morning when I'm like, hey, can you read the scripture for today? Um, so we're actually gonna do something a little bit different today. Normally we do what's called, this is just a fancy word, uh, we do expository preaching, which is just a fancy way for saying we try to take the same message that's in the text with the same intent and preach that same thing. But every once in a while, it's good to, to uh, break from that and do something more topical or just ch- kind of change the pace, especially if something happens you know, in our state, city, in our country, whatever. Um, but every once in a while, it's just, it's healthy to break us off of that course to a, just address something, especially if you're at a, a, a crucial point of change or anything like that. So today, we're actually going to be doing a bit more of a topical teaching on this passage. We're not talking so much about Paul's overall message, but his method. So we're still right there in the text, but we're, we're looking more at what he's doing or how he's doing it rather than what he's specifically saying. So let me ask you guys this question. Did you guys catch when Esther was just reading it what in the world is up with this altar to an unknown God? Did you catch this? So Paul is in Athens, you know, the seat of ancient wisdom and philosophy, basically the, the corner of, of Western culture as we know it. 
And he's there, and he gets, a, he gets an audience in front of the Greeks, and he starts talking about this altar to an unknown god. And I, don't even, I don't know if you know this, but there is a famous, famous backstory to this. It's one of the most interesting backstories, I think, in the entire New Testament. So Paul is standing in a place called the Areopagus. Interestingly enough, it's the exact same spot where Socrates, you know, you've heard of Socrates and Plato. This is where Socrates did his last defense. This was his last stand, and they ended up executing him uh, for being something like a monotheist and rejecting all the rest of the pantheon. But this is where Socrates made his last stand. But a couple hundred years before Socrates, something else happened on that very site where Paul is speaking, on the Areopagus. And it has to do with these, with, with, with these altars that Paul is pointing out, saying, to an unknown god. So a terrible plague struck Athens in about the year 600 B.C., it was awful. People were dying. Their, their fingers were turning black and falling off. They, the scholars think it was probably the bubonic plague, and much of Athens was dying. And so they tried sacrificing to all their gods to get rid of this plague, right? That was, that was what they had. They were, they were pagans, and so that was what they were doing to try to get rid of the plague. But no matter who they sacrificed to, no matter what they did, this plague continued ravaging their city. So they called a council, and there was a priestess, sort of like a prophet priestess, uh, in Athens, who said, clearly what we're doing is not working. We need to change, but we don't know. These 300 gods that we have are not helping us, but I know of this prophet, poet, on the island of Crete. His name is Epimenides. He is kind of reported to be the, the real deal, so let's go ask him what to do. Now, this, this prophet, Epimenides, was a pagan prophet, so just so you know in the story, but he was what the Greeks considered kind of the real deal, one of the most famous, well-known prophets of the day. So they sent a ship to Crete to fetch this prophet. And, you know, everyone's dying and all the sailors couldn't make it. But they finally got a ship to go get this Epimenides character. And they begged him. They said, please, come back to Athens. Save us. Do something before it's too late. So he went with. And he took a bunch of sheep with him. A lot of black sheep and, and white sheep. And maybe there's some symbolism there, and I'm not really sure what it means in the ancient world. But you can look this up. This is in the, this is in the history books. What's interesting is he, he took these sheep, but he didn't let them graze for a day or two. So it wasn't like, I don't know, maybe it bordered on animal cruelty, but he wasn't starving them for like a long time, but sheep tend to graze like all day. They just, they're always eating. And he decided he wasn't going to let them eat for about a day or two beforehand because he was going to perform a test. He was going to do, uh, you could say, a religious test. So when they, the ship arrives in Athens, and they all went to the same place where Paul is speaking, the Areopagus. And the prophet Epimenides shares, he says, I have a few assumptions. There are a few things that I know. He said, one, there is a God somehow concerned or somehow involved in this that has some power, and we don't know who he is. There's, there's someone else out there who's involved. There's some God involved in this, and we don't know who he is. My second assumption is this God is great enough and good enough to do something about this plague if only we invoke his help. And three, any God great enough and good enough to do something about this plague is also good enough to smile upon us in our ignorance for not knowing who he is. So, the three again. That there's a God concerned in this matter that we don't know. That this God is great enough to do something. He can actually maybe fix or help alleviate this plague. And that three, he's humble. He's not a narcissist, right? He'll smile upon us for not knowing who he is. Even if we just admit, hey, we don't know who you are, but please help, maybe he'll do it. So, they let the sheep out, these hungry sheep that hadn't eaten in a couple days. And it was said that wherever the sheep didn't graze but walked and then laid down instead, that there they would build an altar. And all the people thought, this is ridiculous. They're like, you haven't fed these sheep in two days. They're just going to graze for like 
all day long. That's all they're going to do, and we're just going to be sitting here like a bunch of idiots because they're just going to be eating. But Epimenides is like, just, just chill, just try it. That's the Greek translation was chill. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so they, uh, they decided to test it. So they let these sheep out, and sure enough, many of them grazed, but there were a number of them that walked and walked and walked and walked, and, and eventually they, they reached a spot, and they just lied down. Even though they hadn't eaten in days, they just lied down, and that was the spot where they, they lay. And this is Epimenides' His sort of prophecy was that they would mark the spot and then build an altar on that spot. So there were probably, I don't know, half dozen, a dozen spots where this happened. And then uh, they sent out the stonemasons to build the altars. Again, these are pagan altars, so I'm not saying this is like some Hebrew, true God, religion kind of thing. It was a pagan thing. But they sent out the stonemasons to build these altars, and when the stonemasons got to the spots, they said, well, you know, you can't have an altar without an inscription to to some kind of God. So in whose name should we dedicate these altars? You know, to Zeus or, or to you, Epimenides? Like, who, who, whose name do we put on it? And Epimenides kind of laughed. He's like, well, whose name do you put on it? I mean, if, if this deity out there that we don't even know is going to help us, then we'd be absolute fools to try to put a name on it because he's sort of, he's humble enough to acknowledge that we don't know who he is. So if we were to try to name him now, that would maybe offend him or we would be fools to do it. But they're like, well, Surely, we got to put something on the altars. You can't just have a blank altar. Maybe somebody else will come and inscribe it with something else. So he says, okay, this is what you write on the altars. Write agnosto theo. It just means to an unknown God. This agnosto word is where we get the word agnostic, somebody who, who doesn't know if God exists. And this, this word is used here to describe the word God. So to an unknown God. So that's what they inscribed on all these altars at the exact same spot that Paul is standing. To an unknown God. And then, unfortunately for the hungry sheep, they uh, sacrificed the ones that laid down on these kind of newly constructed altars that they had just built. And beginning the very next day, the plague began to weaken, and within one week, all of Athens was like miraculously cured. Anyone who was sick no longer died at that point. The whole city kind of recovered, and they were all just overflowing with praise for this, this foreigner, this Cretan, Epimenides, who had somehow, you know, called upon the power of this unknown God. And the citizens regularly visited these altars. This happened about 600 years before Christ, so it was quite a long time before Paul was standing there. But the citizens regularly visited these altars. Um, They brought flowers, they they worshipped there as a sign of thankfulness, and later they, they carved a statue of Epimenides in front of one of their major temples. And so Athenians, for 600 years, knew that their civilization was entirely dependent on some god that they didn't know, that there was some, some force, some deity, some god out there that had, in a sense, spared them from this plague. They respected him, they knew his power, but they awaited the day when maybe they would discover his true identity. And that scene took place on the exact hill where Paul was speaking. So when he's pointing to these uh, these altars with, that are inscribed to the unknown God, he's pointing at actual things that you could see from this hill, because that's where the sheep were let out 600 years, and those altars still would have been standing there at that time. So I just think this is a, this is a fascinating story. It's showing how well Paul knew his culture and how well he knew his history of that exact spot. He's often offering a master class in contextualization in how do you share the good news of a savior with a culture who does not recognize your God and a culture who doesn't even recognize your scripture or your holy book. How do you find that bridge? And Paul is showing us how he's doing this, and it almost makes us a little nervous with some of the steps he takes. So Paul was in Athens alone. He'd kind of gotten into trouble, as Paul often did, 
and they wanted to send him off secretly by night so that he wouldn't get killed. Again, he was, you know, people were always trying to kill Paul, so they tried to send him off so that he um, wouldn't get killed. So he's walking the city and praying and learning. Or he's always learning, he's always reading. And even before his team gets there, he begins preaching and teaching, both in the Jewish synagogue and the Greek marketplace. And very quickly, as always happened, he kind of gathered a certain sense of scandal around him. Right? The whole city very quickly became aware that he was there and that he was kind of turning the world upside down. So the Greek thinkers said to come to the Areopagus so that they could sort of test this new teaching, that they could hear it, that all the most important dudes, because this is a patriarchal society, it was only um, men there in terms of the ruling class, that they could assess Paul's teaching. And now, the scene isn't as innocuous as Luke makes it seem. They kind of make it seem like, I don't know if you caught this dig, it was great, um, when Esther read it, there was a... that it says, at this time, the Athenians spent their lives doing nothing but either hearing or telling something that was new, which is like one of the most passive-aggressive digs in the entire New Testament. Like the Athenians, are just, they care about novelty, and that's it. Um, so that's all Luke says about it. But uh, it, it, Paul also, he was both there for novelty, they wanted to hear something new, but he was also on trial. If they deemed that he was saying something sacrilegious or harmful to Greece, they could have had him executed. Because... It's important to remember that this is the exact same spot that Socrates also made his last defense and then was ordered to be executed. And what's interesting is that Socrates rejected all the Greek gods, and he, just through reason, this is kind of crazy, through reason, Socrates got to the point where he said, if there is some sort of higher power, he believed that it was all, it was all, there was one supreme god, and he just called it Theos, like this is like the one god. And so the Greeks actually had him killed for corrupting the youth because he rejected all the Greek pantheon, but he believed in one God. And Christians later reading him were like, how do you get there? Like, it was just amazing that he got there through reason. Like, he had no revelation, but he got close. He got close. So anyway, Socrates, being something of a monotheist and rejecting the Greek gods, was killed because of what he said on that hill. And here Paul is. He also rejects the pantheon. He, too, is a monotheist, and here he is defending his faith. So he's both there for novelty, and he's also kind of, his neck is on the line. So he begins a speech. He says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So notice he doesn't say, Hey, you guys are all idiots and your gods are fake and you need to humble yourselves and repent. Um, There is a case for the humble yourself and repent thing. You know, coming from the same background, when, Ju- when Jesus is preaching in a Jewish culture, he does say, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. So there is a, there is a spot for that, but when Paul is bridging that b- big of a cultural gap, he doesn't come out with guns blazing. Instead, he meets them where they're at and works within their context to open up a kind of a spiritual bridge or to be within their contextual and historical understanding. You could say that Paul is trying to scratch where they're itching. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was funny, at least. Uh, <laughs> you never know what makes people laugh. Sometimes you say something just totally lame, and people laugh, and then you say something you think is funny. It's, it's weird. All right. Um, so he says, I know how Athens was spared from that plague by an unknown God, and I know that you've been waiting to have that God revealed to you, and that's why I'm here to reveal. So he's saying to them, he's not just some foreign divinity, the person that I'm, the God that I'm here to reveal. He was here. He's, in a sense, he's Athens' God. He's in your city, and he's been here before. He's saved your life before. So I'm here to proclaim this God to you. What's crazy is I think 
Paul doesn't just study the Greek culture as an outsider. He also lives it, and I think he enjoys it. He spent more than a decade debating with travelers and merchants in his tent shop. I don't know if you know this. There's, um, there's about 14 lost years of Paul's life. So he becomes a Christian, and then really the next record we have of him is about 12 or 14 years later when he's writing 1 Thessalonians, or one of the letters. And if you piecemeal together some of what he says later about his past, you realize if you do out the full chronology of his life based on when he became a Christian and then when he started writing, there are about 10 to 14 years where he's back at Antioch. And then later, they're having all these problems. uh, Or sorry, he's back at Tarsus. And they have to go fetch him because there's a problem at Antioch. They're like, we need someone who really gets the Jewish-Gentile thing and can come in and teach. And so they go and fetch him. And we don't know exactly what he was doing, but most people think that he was just making, selling tents, being involved in the community there, and there was a, a it was, this was sort of a philosophical spot, so he was likely very well-versed in just Greek life, you could say. He quotes later some Greek philosophers and poets from memory. So the idea is that Paul wasn't just trying to mine Greek history in order to have some desired outcome, that if he knew the poets by heart, that he probably enjoyed living among them. He, does, he, he didn't want to sin in the way that Greek culture sinned, but he, in a sense, enjoyed being an urban, you know, reading, play-attending Christian to the point that he was actually able to, to deal with the same culture that they were dealing and pull from it when he wanted to. So something for us to think about is, with all of Paul's history, with all of the Christian, Jewish, non-Christian friends that he had, it makes us think that I think as Christians, there is a call to make more non-Christian friends, to be purposely in the world, though not of the world. To be, I think a lot of us might have just acquaintances, maybe at work or at school, or maybe one serious non-Christian friend, but a goal for us would be to have five really good non-Christian friends that we actually live life with regularly. Now, not to become of the world, but I think we're often not even in the world, so there's no chance to share. Paul loved non-believers. He read what they read, and I think if he were alive today, though he'd follow conscience and he wouldn't delve into sin, he would watch as far as he could. He would watch what culture watched, you could say. So we need to, in a sense, be in the world, but not of it. Paul became like the people that he wanted to reach, you know, whether it was Greek people, Roman people, Jewish people, high class, low class, you name it. He became like the people he wanted to reach. So if you want to reach people, if you want to reach people in an urban environment in St. Paul, we need to become like the people we're trying to reach. And again, we don't, we don't dishonor God by doing that. But in a sense, we want to read what they're reading, watch what they're watching, care about what they care about as far as we, we feel like our conscience will allow. Paul needed a door in. Knowing their culture and history, now he's in. And with that bridge, then he can sort of leave a lot of that behind. He checks in with Greek culture every once in a while, but now he's free, now that he's got this in, now he's free to share about who God is, and he goes completely from the Old Testament at that point. He says, this is his teaching kind of summarized, he says, God made the world and everything in it, this is all from Genesis through Deuteronomy, God made the world and everything in it, God doesn't live in temples, he needs nothing from man, he's not served by humankind, God is the source of everything, anything that we can give God is just something he gave us, given back to him. He's teeing it up here to criticize them for making little idols and worshiping them. Uh, God is the source of everything. I said that uh, he made us and the earth for us to live on, and he made us to seek him. We have a desire to seek him. So he's taking all these points right from the Old Testament, but then after a little while, just pure like hitting the Old Testament who God is, then he checks back in with the Greek poets just to kind of keep them 
keep them on the line. He quotes, I don't know how you say it, Aratus, Aratus, and he says, in him we live and move and have our being. This is, I mean, I, I just think this is fascinating. Um, you know how some people won't interact with something that's not a Christian source? Like, you, you know, you grow up, like, in a fundamentalist atmosphere, and you're not allowed to, like, I don't know, name it, you know, whatever, not read Harry Potter, or whatever the thing was. Um, here Paul is quoting pagan philosophers, and we call this, like, in a sense, we call it scripture, and he's quoting pagan philosophers right within what we call, like, our scripture. It's just like, what a nightmare to the fundamentalist, right, that there's these pagan philosophers being quoted right in our scripture. So he's quoting Aratus, saying, in him we live and move and have our being. And what's crazy is that this poet was talking about Zeus at that point. And so Paul's saying, hey, you know your poet who says that in Zeus we live and move and have our being? Well, he was kind of right in a way, but you know, we, we differ on maybe who, that, who the, the understanding of that supreme God is. But he's even, he's even hitting on their cultural understanding of God just so that they will track with him. Then he quotes, you remember our guy from the beginning of the story? He quotes Epimenides, which is why we can be sure. He's at the exact spot, and he quotes this sort of secondary figure from Greek history. And so we know that he knows this story and that the Athenians there know it as well. He says, from one of Epimenides' poems, he says, for we are indeed his offspring. So he's trying to share about the image of God, but instead of sharing from Genesis 1, 26 and 27, he's pulling from a Greek poet to back it up. It's still the same truth. He's just using a different backing to share it so that it'll be more accessible to his audience. And then once he's established this whole argument, then he starts to push on them a little bit on their idolatry. He's kind of saying, you know, if you were created by God, then for you to then create these little idols and worship them is kind of foolish because you're really only doing something that he equipped you to do in the first place. Um, so he's starting to kind of push on them a little bit about creating their idols. But then he, he gets back to a more general argument. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. So the times when you wrote to an unknown God, those times are, are being overlooked. In a sense, he's going to look the other way on that. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because of the judgment that's coming, and you will be judged by a man who was raised from the dead. I don't think he names Jesus there, but he's talking, he, he just cues it up. He talks about a man who was raised from the dead, and then the whole thing explodes. Then, then you have different factions all kind of like, wait, 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 what's going on here? And some people believe, and some people are like, we'll hear you again on this, and other people just scoff and walk away, because in that day, the resurrection and, and miracles were just as unacceptable to them as to many modern people with a, with a scientific mindset. I think there's sometimes this idea that ancient people will just believe anything because, you know, they're ancient, but they absolutely did not believe the resurrection any more than uh, someone here would. So from that meeting, yeah, some believed, some scoffed, and some were like, well, well, we'll hear you again on this. And what's interesting here is that Paul didn't actually get to share the full good news. He didn't get to explain the cross, the death, the resurrection on the third day. He started the conversation. And I think that's something we need to be freed up to do as well. As we make friends, as we're in our communities, I think sometimes Christians, when they get a chance to share, they just like, ugh, it's just like verbal vomit. They kind of like monologue the whole, the whole Romans road, the whole story at you at one time. But there's a, there's a, a sense in which we can, we can cue up the story. We can start with some, some of the foundation of the story, but then carry that through relationship. We can carry it longer and, and allow that, that conversation to flesh out. Because most people, I don't know if you noticed this, that in a North American city, most people won't hear a full gospel presentation cold, having never known it, and then just believe. It normally takes 6, 12, 18 months of long relationship and community for them to 
come to that point. So the reason we're looking at this, this passage, not so much the meaning specifically, but the method that Paul is using here, is that it's kind of a master class in contextualization. And at Capital City Church, this is kind of the phase that we are getting into. So we had two months where the main push, I think this is week nine of us meeting together, and for about the first two months, our main push was getting most of our systems built. We still have work to do, but like the sound is all working, you know, the nursery is more or less you know, all good to go. A lot of our systems are good, and, and so our main push was kind of uh, come and see, right? Some churches never leave the come and see thing. They're just always a come and see church, and there's, there's something to be said for that, I suppose. But now we want to be a go and be church, right? So not the come and see, but the go and be kind of uh, model. And what's, what's encouraging is that churches, Lord willing, most churches outlast human life. So like, I, I love the idea of starting this church and hopefully, Lord willing, it outlasts all of us in this room. It lasts for 100, 200, 500 years. Um, I don't know if you know this. Some of the churches that Paul started have literally worshipped every Sunday since he started the church. And they're still continuing to this day. They're, you know, Orthodox churches. But they're still continuing to this day for 2,000 years straight of straight worship. So I would love that if, we're, if humans were all still around here in 2,000 years for Capital City to still be meeting. Probably not in this specific building, because, you know, not many buildings can last that long. Anyway, um, two months, this is kind of our transition from, hey, hey, neighborhood, come see what we're doing, to now let's go and be the church in our parish, in our community, in our, in our city. Partly, that was always the plan, but also I think we know what we're up against. Um, some of you were, were, were all out some of you were out a lot doing this. Uh, we handed out 3,600 flyers to almost all the homes in the West 7th neighborhood and a few homes outside the West 7th neighborhood. And we had, in terms of just pure random visitors come from those flyers, somewhere between one and four. Um, we actually had more fruit from, I think when you, spend, when you have a lot of Christians doing a lot of inv- inviting, then they just think to invite their own friends more as well. We had more people come from that avenue. Like all the people who did the flyering then sent a text to their friend because they were thinking about inviting people all day. We had more people come through that avenue. Um, but yeah, I mean, we had about one person come, give or take, for about a thousand flyers. So it was still good that we did it. There's a lot more awareness in the neighborhood. People are aware, and like maybe if they get three or four different plugs over the years that we're here, then they'll come. So there's something to be said. But I think it's also very fair to say that we are in a very post-Christian environment here in St. Paul. Like if we were to start a CrossFit gym or like a yoga studio and put 4,000 flyers out there and it was free, can you imagine how many people would show up on opening day? Like ridiculous, right? So it's the, the church is not something that people are gravitating toward, you could say. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so we're in a post-Christian environment. And Paul in Athens, I guess you could say he's in a very pre-Christian environment, but it's a similar atmosphere where no one really knew what he was talking about and he was, he was a sharing it for the first time with so many people who had a completely different religious background than he did. So he's a great example, and he's a, it's something for us to learn from. They had their story, the Athenians had this history of being delivered by a God that they didn't know, and they recognized that they didn't know him, and Paul said, okay, there's my bridge, that's where I'm going to start. And then once I start there and I make this connection with them, then I can tell them about the true nature of God. And he let he let some of the messiness continue. He didn't give them like straight up pure doctrine right off the start. He sort of, he hooked them and then he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue this. All right. So I would say our society is both somewhat similar, but also quite different to the Athenians. So the Athenians were 
um, pagans that had 300 gods, whereas our society is mostly agnostic and atheistic and doesn't really believe in God at all, at least in terms of how they actually make their decisions. We are also uh, extremely cut off from community and authority and any kind of institution. We tend to distrust almost any institution. Unless it's like Google or Facebook, people will give them anything they want in terms of information. But when it's a church, it's like, oh, don't come anywhere near me. I don't want anything to do with your church. Um, So certain institutions we have very little trust in. And the people that we're trying to reach are swimming in consumerism and individual autonomy, just the two, like, the two horsemen of our era, just consumerism and autonomy. So just like Paul found an opening and a shared bridge through which he could share Christ, what are the felt needs, what are the hungers, what are the shared bridges that we can tap into in our society? And there are so many. There are just dozens, but I wanted to pick a couple that I have especially sensed in St. Paul. One of them is loneliness. It's a shared bridge, something that um, non-believing society, non-believing culture, and Christians, Jews, whoever you are, uh, agrees that this is a huge problem. All the sociologists, all the psychologists are all talking about this, that Americans today are actually the loneliest generation, Westerners, we are the loneliest people ever recorded ever in all of human history. So since we started recording these kinds of things 100 years ago, we are by far the loneliest, and then just through reading history and seeing how connected people were, we are probably the loneliest human beings that have ever lived outside of like some severe solitary confinement or some awful situation. We went from so healthy and so embedded in community as recently as even the 1940s and 50s to now the loneliest people in history. And this is nothing to just kind of sneeze at. Um, Suicide, depression, mental health, quality of life, this, all of this stuff is plummeting. And just uh, atheistic, uh, secular psychologists and sociologists talk about this a lot. That's the opposite. What we're seeing now is the opposite of human flourishing. That's not the ultimate goal by any means, but it's something that we can tap into that's a shared concern between, you know, uh, atheist sociologists and and believing uh, Christians all share that this is a a major problem. Among young people, suicide is 46% more likely than just 12 years ago before smartphones became uh, common. So why? I mean, why is this? There are a lot of reasons. We'll get into some of them. Uh, one of the main ones is, uh, is technology. Not that it's the cause, but it's an enabler of the other things that are happening in our society. And we're not against technology, but it's important to do the work to understand what it is that's making us so sick or so unhappy. So that in, his, uh, in his book, Bowling Alone, there's a famous sociologist named Robert D. Putnam, and he talks about how Americans' involvement in different civic communities is ap- it's just absolutely plummeted in the last 60 years. So we used to be so civically rooted in our neighborhood and, and location, whether through parish, through churches, uh, bowling clubs, men's, women's group, church group, fishing groups, book clubs, you name it. We were plugged in and we were rooted locally. And now, many Americans in their 20s and 30s belong to literally not a single thing. And they might even work from home. So they might have zero community at all, anywhere. Not a single person, like if they were to just collapse dead in their apartment, no one might know for weeks, because like they just wouldn't be noticed missing anywhere. They while away their time on Snapchat, Instagram, social media, always seeing these perfect lives of others through this curated, you know, share only what I want to share kind of filter, rather than real life. Um, and so. It's just this fascinating that social media has this perfect inverse correlation to happiness. The more you use it, the less fulfilled you are. Minute by minute, hour by hour, no questions asked. It's always the more you use it, the less satisfied or happy or meaningful your life seems. 
Um, one sociologist described it like this. They said, imagine being out in the cold. So it's maybe not like a Minnesota crazy cold day, but say like 40 degrees, um, 40 degrees and a little sunny in, in late November. But, you know, imagine you're wearing the right clothing. It's no sweat. We all enjoy a brisk walk in the cold sometimes. So you're out there, you've got a piping hot cup of coffee, and you're with a friend having good conversations about 40 and sunny out. And if you're wearing the right clothing, that's no problem at all. This is just a healthy walk out in the woods, and you're enjoying your time. But now, what happens if all of your jackets and stuff are taken, and you're just left with a bathing suit, and then the sun starts to go down, right? So all of a sudden, what you're just having a nice brisk walk in the woods, and it's healthy. Now you're left with a bathing suit, and the sun goes down. It's 40 degrees in late November, and it's like nighttime. You're out in the forest. So your healthy, fun walk in the woods has quickly gone from nice to dangerous, and then from dangerous to deadly. And the uh, sociologists talk about this, how in terms of mental health, uh, you, can just, you could describe the life of a human being and the challenges that we face somewhat like weather. Sickness, depression, um, just variations in mental health, that comes and goes a little bit like, like weather does. It gets cold and dark sometimes. But if you're dressed appropriately, if you have the right social fabric around you, you often don't even notice, or it's just a little, little dip, it's like, oh, it's a little cold out, but I'm not going to die from it, right, because you're, you're, you're taken care of. But when you lose that entire social fabric, when the, the warmth, when the protection is gone, then all of a sudden those little dips in life, those little depressions, those little cold spells can make a huge difference. So they say you take away the fabric and it gets dire really quick. So for the last 60 years, this is what's happened in our entire social fabric, our institutional um, civic fabric. We find ourselves in the woods out in November and the sun is going down. We have uh, the other factors, and we mentioned briefly technology, but the erosion of the family, out of control individuality and the technology that allows that to continue. Um, They've just absolutely eroded our social fabric. And then you mix that with the availability of illegal drugs, prescription drugs, access to, to lethal things like guns or whatever, and then that's, you also have your suicide crisis that's just exploding beyond control. And the internet, as much as I appreciate it, about probably half of my research for sermons comes from the internet. You guys, we all use it all the time. It's great. Uh, but as much as it was supposed to connect us, I don't know if you remember Mark Zuckerberg back in like 2005 and six. Do you remember this sort of utopian language about Facebook? Like, finally, we have a tool to connect people, right? Uh, but instead, it's kind of isolated us. I don't know if you've ever read the poem, the, the famous John Donne poem about uh, no man is an island. And for so much of human history, that was true. But actually right now, most of us could be or are fighting against being an isolated island unto ourselves. So God did not make us for autonomy to be our own little individual demigods. We're not made to sit in a room and look through a little blue triangle at everyone else's perfect curated life, right? God made us that we might have life and have it abundantly. Now again, Jesus didn't come to give us community. That's, that's just a, a byproduct of, of a healthy life. He came to claim his kingdom and to redeem and reconcile us to God through his death and resurrection. He came to be our, our savior and he came to be our Lord. But it's important to remember he also taught us how to follow him together. And toward the core of that teaching is to come together as a community, to worship him, to care for one another, and to bear one another's burdens. God made us for community he made us for togetherness and for bearing one another's burdens and for praying for one another. And like Josiah just, just shared a little bit ago, we strongly believe in small groups because 
I don't know, there are probably about eight, ten things, depending on how you define it, that the church is required in a sense, that, that the church is held accountable for, for providing for the believers. And almost all of them are taken care of better in a small group setting, in terms of praying for one another, uh, accountability, discipleship, that real life-on-life connection that a church ought to provide, often doesn't come from uh, Sunday ministry. On Sunday, we can do communion, we can worship together, we can hear a teaching, but most of what the church is required to do happens in smaller group settings. So that is a huge belief of our church. So as we're kind of transitioning from come and see what we're doing to go and be, small groups will be one of the absolute core facets of how we, how we do life, how we do church. We both have Bible study and, and fellowship times together, but also our mercy ministry, the care for the least of these, and then um, our evangelism or sort of I, I used to call it friendship evangelism, which I think scared people away. It's basically fellowship and having fun together, but also inviting your non-believing friends. And there's no overall uh, impetus there. It's just to get to know one another, and then those conversations can happen as we get to know each other. But that's a, that's a strong emphasis as our church, as we're making this pivot to go and be rather than come and see. So as we're looking around, this is just one of the dozens of needs I could have focused on, but I thought the social fabric one was interesting, especially in an urban environment as we're trying to be real community in this era of dusty individualism, that we can actually be a balm, we can be a salve to the loneliness, to, to the depression that our community feels, and we can create meaningful relationships, we can create groups, we can join groups, we can be a part of civic life and be a, be a balm, we can be an oasis in the desert that our cities are becoming of community. So that's one thing. I think another one, and I think more people will maybe connect with this, we can meet our culture in one of their biggest dilemmas. And I think one of the biggest dilemmas people, people face is our sense of injustice. You know, why is there evil? Why is there suffering? Why is there poverty? What is our role in all of this? Our society, this is actually kind of interesting how this shook out, that our society has a deep Judeo-Christian understanding of what justice means, which is actually very new to the world. Yeah, uh, to, the idea of caring for somebody that you've never met before, that it's good to help you know, the orphan or the sick person that you've never met, is a very strange and foreign idea to almost all world systems of, of belief. But it's, it's a cornerstone to Jewish and Christian thought, right? To care for the least of these. There's an old Indian proverb that says, uh, a foreigner's tears are only water. And it's that idea that don't bother, the resources are scarce, don't waste them on a foreigner, you don't know who they are. But I think within Jewish and Christian teaching, um, we care for the least of these, and we believe in helping those even if we've never met them, even if they can't give us any benefit. So the society around us, I think, shares that Judeo-Christian understanding, even though they don't believe in God. They care so deeply for justice, but their worldview doesn't really explain why. So they've taken this Christian sense of of justice and then divorced it from Christ who is the source and then they've kind of set it up on their own little plane and they've called it humanism and then when you really push them if you really if you argue within the bounds of say evolutionary biology and you really push them they actually don't know why they believe in justice as they do you know it's not a they're not they're not arguing for a chinese sense of justice or an indigenous sense of justice they have a very christian understanding of what it means to help the poor but when you compare that against their understanding for why we are the way we are, when you say, well, you know, the animal kingdom is defined by the survival of the fittest, right? Dog eat dog, only the strong survive. But when humans act like that, those are the people we revile most. When a human acts like this dog eat dog, only the strong survive, those are our villains of history. You name them, right? Hitler, Stalin, Mao, whoever you want to name. 
But the people that we respect the most are the ones who veer the farthest from the dog-eat-dog kind of idea, right? The strong lion and the Serengeti thing. Think of uh, Jesus himself. Think of Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr. These people have veered the farthest away that you can get in a lot of ways from the survival of the fittest, and those are the ones that we respect. So we have these two different standards for humans and then for the entire animal kingdom, yet people don't know how to People don't know why there should be two different standards. Well, we do. As Christians, we have the image of God. We can, we can say, I, I know your feeling. I know your sense of injustice. Let me tell you about God who put his image on all of us. Right? There, there's, this, there's this bridge and connection that we can make. We can say, what does it mean to be human? Right? Does it just mean that we won the, won the dog-eat-dog battle and we're on the top of the food chain? No, there's more to being human than that. I skipped way too far ahead of my notes. Uh, all right. Um, there are a couple places that where, where people know something is wrong. So just in this quick message, we talked about the erosion of the social, social fabric and injustice, and there are so many more. But unlike Paul, we don't, really have a, we don't really have the open marketplace where just a bunch of different ideas can come together and actually be fairly heard. You'd maybe think for a second, like, well, Twitter or Facebook is like that. And it's actually kind of the opposite, right? That people just silo themselves into their own school of thought and then just keep... Uh, what's it called, like an echo chamber. They just keep feeding themselves their own thought. So we really have no open place to talk about these ideas. But I've just found that in order to have a loving and fruitful exchange of beliefs or or, or ideas, you really need relationship and community. I've rarely seen someone, unless the Holy Spirit has done a crazy work in someone's life, I've rarely seen someone take less than six months to come to know Christ. That's normally a long slog through love, through community, through spending time, not just with one Christian, but multiple Christians, and that way they can get to know what it means to follow Christ. So, again, mentioning the two by the, or, or I don't know if I mentioned this, I mentioned small groups. Um, you might have heard us talk about the two by two ministries. Anyone, you guys remember the two by two thing that we used to talk about? So, when we were starting to build the pillars of what our church was going to be, we talked about this ministry, maybe we should find a better name for it, but we talked about two by two, a two by two ministry, and basically what it means is how do we solve the problem of Christians not knowing non-Christians? How do we solve the problem of getting out of our bubble? And this is one of the things that we came up with. And we gave ourselves eight weeks because, you know, you can't do everything all at once. We gave ourselves eight or nine weeks to really focus on, hey, we're here in the neighborhood. Come be a part of what we're doing. But now as we go and be the church in the community, one of the main uh, I always feel weird saying this. Foci. I know it's the correct plural of focus, but I hate saying it. One of the main foci of our church is uh, these two-by-two ministries where people will jump into the community in in clubs or groups that most of them will already exist. We we don't want to reinvent the wheel. But you jump into a club based on your own own interests. So if you love to, like, run or write or read or whatever it might be, make pottery, I don't know, join a group with somebody else who's not your spouse. Um... One, in case you have kids, uh, that would take care of the childcare stuff. But two, it helps to be more on mission when you're with somebody who doesn't already have uh, such a close, kind of already walled-in uh, community, like, a, like a, a spouse or something like that. So we're going to partner up with someone who has a shared interest, and we're going to start getting involved in the community. So maybe I join like a book club or something, given my kind of geeky nature. Um, but we'll, we'll jump into the community, and we'll just we'll show up. And then the main point is to just be faithful to be good friends, and to get to know more people. I think one goal for everyone in our church, and I don't know how many Christians can say this, one goal for everyone in our church is to have five 
real and significant friendships with non-Christians. Not just like, hey, you know, we kind of, you know, have fun at the water cooler at work, but like five people that it would not be awkward for you to invite over to your home by the end of this year. So 12 months from now that you can invite someone out for coffee or to a movie and it's not like, oh, it's kind of awkward. It's the first time I've ever said this to this person. Um, I think that's one main goal that we have for our church. And doing these two-by-two ministries would be one of the main ways to do that because you can be really comfortable sharing your faith. You can be really comfortable in, in evangelism. But if you do not know non-Christians well, you'll never have the trust and you'll never have the opportunity to actually be that deep with somebody. Um, so be thinking now. The email will start to come in the next you know, week or two, but start to be thinking. This is a, this is a very practical message, which is a little d- different for me, um, but be thinking on how you could be involved in your neighborhood, in your city, in something that, for the most part, already exists. You don't have to like start some nonprofit or bring the whole city to you. Just find something that already exists and figure out how you could jump into it with somebody else that you're already friends with here just so that you could get to know more people and that as the months go on and you're just a good friend that those conversations could grow from that. And the reason we're doing this is because we, we have something to share. We worship the unchanging, all-loving, justice-giving, and community-giving God. And the people that we're trying to reach are not going to come in these doors, right? We've, we've spent the time and the money inviting the community, and we'll keep doing that some, but we also know that they're not going to blow these doors down like it's a CrossFit box that just started, okay? Um, so just like the early church, they will only come to know God through friendship and community. They might be invited and come to church later, but the real fruit will actually happen in your homes, they'll happen in restaurants, they'll happen in you know, coffee shops, wherever you meet with, uh, with people. And be encouraged. It seems like slow work, but uh, the Spirit really moves through it. I don't know if you've, you've thought about this since I started this message, that nobody really reads, the, the, when Esther read this, she, she, she mentioned that um, it was the Stoics and the Epicureans who were debating Paul and kind of interested in what he said. So the two different factions at the time. And no one really except for scholars or like history buffs reads the Stoics or the Epicureans anymore. Not even many people read Plato's account of what Socrates used to teach. Uh, and those altars to the unknown gods where Paul, where this whole story started, have long since crumbled or the stones have been recycled and used for um, you know, Christian um, churches or, or even mosques. But right on that Areopagus still today, even though those altars are gone and even though everything else, all the, the traces of this are gone, on the Areopagus stands a plaque to this day where Paul's entire argument, the whole passage, that passage that Esther read is the whole thing is there in capital letters in Greek. It's just like a giant plaque, and it's still there to this day honoring the, the message that he preached. And not Socrates, you know, not the, the altars, but what Paul said is on that hill to this day. And it reminded me of the verse in Isaiah that says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So today marks this transition for Capital City Church. And I've said it before, but this, the come and see chapter made sense for two months, and now, Lord willing, for the rest of our entire existence, Lord willing, be it centuries, will be a go-and-be church. So get ready and pray and see how God would use you in creating those bridges and contextualizing the love of Jesus for those around us. So let me pray to close us. Lord, we, uh, we thank you so much for your church. We thank you so much for establishing it, for um, telling us how to come together and worship you and love one another. We pray now, Lord, that you would bless Capital City Church, that you would make it a true expression of your church, and that uh, you would help us to transition now as we've kind of done what we could to get ourselves known in the neighborhood now to, to be more of a, a go-and-be church, to 
spend more and more of our time and energy loving the least of these and, uh, and serving and sharing your good news. We pray for wisdom, strength, and we do pray, Lord, that in 12 months or even less that all of us here would have five really good non-Christian friends, which I know is almost unheard of in uh, modern Christianity. I pray that we'd have five close non-Christian friends. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.